Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on the second half of American history with podcast number 18. In the 17th podcast, we went over the idea of imperialism. We discussed the four major reasons or motivations for imperialistic policies. They were, number one, race superiority, two, religious conversion, three, economic opportunity, and four, international security. It motivated the primarily Western European countries, as well as the United States, to race ahead with this idea of colonization to the point of the United States specifically annexing the Hawaiian Islands in 1898, Alaska before that, and keeping our radar out for different opportunities for us to be able to acquire more island nations. That opportunity presented itself, of course, as we talked about in the Spanish-American War, where at the end of the conclusion of that very short war, we received from Spain, Puerto Rico, and Guam, as well as Cuba, in addition to occupying the Philippines. Now, admittedly, these are territories that would not turn into U.S. states with some degree of autonomy, especially with Cuba. But the bottom line is, is we refuse to vacate those islands that Spain once dominated. We then looked at imperialistic ambitions with this idea of the sphere of influence in Asia by also discussing the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1906. So we're gonna, in this podcast, we're going to conclude our discussion on imperialism, specifically pertaining to the United States and establishing our relationships throughout the world. Please note though, that all of these actions that we're looking at here are going to take lead us up to, which will start in the 19th podcast, that of course being the First World War, or as it was known then before the Second World War, the Great War. So with imperial ambitions, America also, after acquiring the islands from Spain, we then turned our attention south by looking at Central and South America, perhaps through a revised lens. Remember again that prior to the age of industrialization, it took six weeks, well over a month, for any European ships to arrive at the United States. It took even longer through the Pacific Ocean with islands and countries in Asia. Those massive moats gave America a significant degree of protection from our independence movement starting in 1776 all the way until the Industrial Age. Now that we have industrialized, we have taken steamships, steam engines, and put them onto our 
carriers and to our ships and battleships. We are now able to traipse across the massive oceans in far less time and with more confidence than humans have ever needed to before. So we are continuing to look beyond our shores for different areas that we feel fall within America's sphere of influence. So with that, Senator Orville H. Platt from Connecticut passes the what became what became known as the Platt Amendment, which pertains specifically to Cuba. Cuba, yes, you are independent. You can fly your own flag and you don't have to put America's flag with that. But if we perceive, if we find out that you negotiate any kind of political, economic, or military arrangements with any other country in the world without America's involvement or at least supervision or involvement, then we are going to take that as an act of war. This passed the American Congress. It did not need to pass through any legislature in Cuba. We were not interested necessarily in their reaction. But keep that in mind as we now move ahead further south by looking at that area that connects the massive continents of North and South America, and that, of course, being Central America. American presidents and other world leaders often thought and even wished that there would be a strait to connect the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Prior to the establishment of the Panama Canal, in order for ships to sail from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and back, remember that they had to truly go around South America. Not only is that a very long distance, but depending upon the time of year, it's an extremely dangerous set of waters. So we can only imagine with the amount of time and money that this cost, how much easier, how much cheaper and safer would it be if we could pass through the Americas through some waterway. But remember again that as by 1804, Lewis and Clark had proved that at least through North America, there was no all-water route from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. That would change in the Teddy Roosevelt administration with the creation, again, as I mentioned earlier, of the Panama Canal. Except there's one problem. In 1901, the country of Panama doesn't exist. If you were to take a look at a map or if you want to pause the podcast now to pull up a world map, and look at the look at Central America. Panama, where you see the region of Panama that borders Costa Rica to the north and Colombia to the south, as it, at the turn of the century of the 18 to the 1900s, Panama was actually Colombia. Colombia owned that whole neck of land. However, we negotiated or tried to negotiate with the Colombians to allow us to establish a strait connecting both bodies of water from the Caribbean Sea into the Pacific Ocean. They weren't interested. We negotiated again. They still weren't interested. Well, time to take matters into our own hands. The country of Colombia, it's a decent-sized country, and to the very north, in that small neck of land, were Panamanian minorities who technically were Colombians because they were occupied but they were a, a Panamanian nation of people. We orchestrated an independence movement by the, Panama the Panamanian people to overthrow the Colombian government, which they successfully did. 
And after fist bumping the American Army and Navy and giving us a high five, thanks for helping us with our independence. Good luck getting back to the United States. Make sure you drop a postcard. We weren't going anywhere. Those military ships backed out into open waters, allowing the merchant ships to come in from the United States and construction ships as we began to negotiate with the Panamanians for the opportunity to connect those two bodies of water. Saying no really wasn't an option. So when the Panama Canal was ultimately dug and opened up for the worldwide use, this is the reason why America never received any negative flack for this. Despite the fact that we thwarted Colombian independent sovereign territory, propped up a small nationalist group, only to turn around and say, yeah, well, your thanks for that, for American assistance, is allowing us to connect these two bodies of water. The ownership of the canal, as was written out in contract, was returned to Panama independent control in 1999. With the establishment of that canal now, Teddy Roosevelt had the bold idea to pass what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary. Corollary. Corollary automatically should trigger in your mind. Corollary to what? What, what came before? What document came before this? that President Teddy Roosevelt is adding this addendum or corollary to. And that document was one that was passed over 75 years before by the President James Monroe in what became known as the Monroe Doctrine that was by and large orchestrated and written by his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams. The Monroe Doctrine for those that did not listen to my podcast series of series in the first half of American history, which of course begs the question, why haven't you listened to those? Kidding, of course. But the Roosevelt, <clears throat> excuse me, the Monroe Doctrine stated that any European country already colonizing in Central or South America, there's really nothing we can do about it. You're going to stay here. We're grandfathering you in. But if any one European country lets a territory or country go, it is not to change hands with another European country. That European country that vacates the territory would then be returned to the indigenous people. Likewise, Western European countries are not to see the, United, the North or Central or South America as any opportunities to acquire more land. Europe has had its heyday in Central and South America, and it's over. Likewise, though, if there are any internal conflicts, wars between European nations, you can rest assured that the United States will not get involved. In other words, you Europeans, you stay out of our waters and we will stay out of your waters. Stay off of our land, we will stay off of your land. Again, if you've already colonized here, clearly as France, Portugal, Great Britain, and Spain clearly still had colonies in Central or North America, they could retain them. But the, the independence movements, if it ultimately overthrew the European colonizing power, then that was that. They were to return home with less land than when they started. So that passed on December 2nd, 1823, and was the mainstay of American foreign policy for the rest of the 1800s. Teddy Roosevelt, 
in great admiration of President Monroe's bold statement, because again, that was a statement by James Monroe to the European people about Central and South American people. But there was no input from South or Central Americans. America didn't run down there with a Pew Research group of people to conduct a poll. We weren't interested. This was a statement, again, a declaration from the United States to Europe about Central and South America, but not exactly getting their input. So Teddy Roosevelt wanted to take that doctrine and throw it on steroids, and again, what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary, pertaining once again to Central and South America. He echoed President Monroe's initial statements. But not only will Europe stay out of Central and South America, the United States will now police the area. So it's a warning or a heads up at minimum to European countries that you're going to see the American Navy in the open waters, the international waters, right up to the line of where the coastal regions have their own private ocean waters. Do not necessarily take that as a threat because again, we are policing the area now, something we have continued to do since the 26th president made that mandate early in his first full administration. Once again though, is anybody's input or opinion missing from this discussion? Once again, you're exactly right, that's Central and South America. Even Europe didn't give us pushback of, of significance on that. So that those two actions, the Monroe Doctrine, along with the Roosevelt Corollary, is how and why the United States had such a significant influence over the last 175 years with our Southern neighbors. It also, it unfortunately, explains the reason why oftentimes there's so much animosity between countries in Central and South America versus the United States. So with our areas, what we consider to be our sphere of influence, now under control, now under police naval protection, it appeared as though that in the opening decade of the 20th century, that the world might be on a good pace or a good road to peace. But as we know, the exact opposite is going to happen because of the outbreak of the First World War. Which leads me then to discuss two final things before we end this podcast and move on to the First World War. And that is how world leaders behave or act, or in other words, how and why world leaders take the actions they do once in power. What I'm essentially discussing here are theories in international relations that try to explain why international actors behave the way that they do. Because if it wasn't of real importance all the way through the history of humankind through to 1899, it's going to be important now because the two most devastating wars in human history are just over the horizon, sadly. So there's two schools, if you want to call them this, two schools of thought as to why world leaders re respond and behave the way they do. 
neither by itself is safe. There has to be some degree of combination of both of these schools, but to explain them and to keep them in their own private camps, where again, they don't operate in a vacuum. But for purposes of explanation, the first of the two schools is what we call the theory of complex interdependence. It's also known as dollar diplomacy. What this school of thought in international relation postulates is that countries will get along because of economic, hence dollar diplomacy, economic need and or economic agreement. In other words, for example, France and Spain, they'll never have any reason to go to war. If France needs grain products from Spain and Spain needs, for example, military hardware from France or England, will always get along with Germany as long as they have economic agreements, trade agreements that allows both countries to essentially need the assets of another. In a world of combined international trade treaties and the like, there should be no reason countries go to war. That's the reason, again, it's called the theory of complex interdependence, also better known as the dollar diplomacy. Let's juxtapose that to the other school of thinking in an international relations, and that is the theory of realism. Even though the word realism can tend to initially indicate that this is the better or more important or the more positive of the two theories, it isn't. It's just the titles that they're given. Complex interdependence versus the theory of realism. The theory of realism essentially is a lot easier to understand. I'm going to put it crassly this way. If I have the bullets, I own the influence. That's essentially what it states. Inter, uh, international relations experts, such as Dr. John J. Mearsheimer out of the University of Chicago, who still teaches and writes extensively on international relations, is a diehard realist. To get more of an idea of what this consists of, I encourage you to go to the website or to look up Dr. John J. Mearsheimer out of the University of Chicago. He has his own website. Heck, I'm on his mailing list for his, um, for his um, newsletters that he sends out every so often. Again, neither is better or worse than the other. It's just within the mindset that we international relations scholars and historians and political scientists study the world and study humankind, we generally just tend to aggregate towards one school of thought or the other. A good and well-versed, well-rounded international relations expert will be able to understand the virtues and the vicissitudes of both schools. We get that. But by and large, we belong in one camp or the other because we genuinely believe that worldwide leaders act the way they do based on the mindset that if I come in into office in, in charge now of country A, that A will get along with B, C, and D because we all have economic needs of one another. Because of that, that theory of complex interdependence is the school of thought that they're embracing. But what about if country A's leader somehow either dies in office or she is overthrown, whatever the case may be, country A gets a new world leader who is a realist, is engaged in the theory of realism, even if they don't understand those terms 
by definition, even if they're not academics. They see the world the way they see it, not necessarily the way it is. They see it as it is, not the way their neighbors necessarily see it. We see the world as we're conditioned to see it, not exactly the way it is objectively. We're human. We truly cannot be 100% objective. It just does not work. We're somehow subjected to our upbringing, our education, our experiences. All these things make up the who that we are. So country A, whose leader that once believed diehard in the theory of complex interdependence, somehow is out of office, and the next leader is a diehard believer of the theory of realism. Sure, that leader, he or she knows that there's economic agreements with their neighbors, countries B, C, and D. But why do I have to worry about producing for countries B, C, and D when maybe instead of actually having to buy their products, I simply take over the country and now I own those products? It doesn't necessarily mean that realists are warmongers, but they understand that no, I, the new leader of country A, no, I may not want to do that. I may not want to militarily take them over but I know it's possible. And if I know that that's possible, I have to assume that the leaders of countries B, C, and D also know that that's possible. And because they could just take my country over rather than stay in an economic agreement with us, I'm going to start ramping up my military preparedness. I'm going to start increasing military technology research. I'm going to acquire more of the latest weapons. But all country A's leaders doing this for is defense. But how does the world leaders of B, C, and D perceive that? I've asked this before. I'm going to ask you again. Outside necessarily of maybe a shield that you physically can hold, almost every weapon in human that humans have ever devised, that have ever improved on, truly can be used for offensive as well as defensive purposes. Even atomic bombs can be used for defensive purposes because now that I own them, if you who also owns them attempt to drop them on me, I drop them on you. So therefore, my ownership of them is for defensive purposes. But is that the reality that your other neighbor's leaders see? These are the two extremes, the two polar opposites that the world of of international relations that we are slowly entering into. Because of that, we are now going to have to prepare as we head into the 20th century for the some of the most horrific wars that have ever taken place in world history. Needless to say, America will not begin those wars. We won't start them. We won't be there in the opening salvos but we will get involved. We know that. And it's going to cost America over a half a million soldiers' lives when we do get involved. So with these two schools of thought in international relations, dollar diplomacy versus the theory of realism, if we have such a basic understanding of how and why human world leaders' minds think, why didn't we, why couldn't we have prevented some of the most horrific wars 
to ultimately begin. And that's what we'll begin with in our next podcast, number 19, in our continuing series on the second half of American history. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, it's a little on the shorter side, but I didn't want to break into World War I and leave that with only a few minutes to go. Or if you have any book recommendations as well, please let me know. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.